from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. And we are going to go back and once again read Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31 and reading down to verse 40. So let's read what God's Word has to say this morning. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, is his name. It is fixed, order parts from before me, declares the Lord. Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from a nation, from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Garab and shall to turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. and shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. In those verses, we see God taking the initiative. I think one of the things about the new covenant we need to remember is that it happens at God's initiative. Did you notice or do you notice as we have read that? And I think that's the third time we have read those verses. He keeps saying, I will. I will. I will do something. God is saying that when he comes and, and when he inaugurates the new covenant, which we saw was inaugurated with Jesus Christ, that he will do it, that he is obligating himself to do something, right? Now, all of us knows the difficulty of that, right? How many times, husbands, has your wife come up to you and said, hey, will you fill in the blank? And you look at your wife in all sincerity and go, yeah, I will do that. And your wife, who is a very gracious and kind wife, gives you a couple days, <laughs> One wife just laughed way too loud. And I probably still haven't done it. Um, right? We, we, we mean to. <laughs> we really do. And, and right now, let's, guys, let's stop. Let's just unfold our arms, stop, you know, take the cross face off our, our face, and, and wives, stop, stop sitting there with a little smug look on your face, all right? All right? We, we, we intend to. We try our best, all right? And, and we eventually get there. Well, you know, we're just being biblical, you know, because behold, the day is coming when we will. T- <laughs> right. No, but the Lord has made this promise. 
And what I want you to see is we, we do this, right? And, and, and we try it. As humans, we say that. I, I, I will do it. I, I will do this. And, and we, we usually come, you know, make do on that promise. But the Lord has said that he will do it. And he has. He has made promises that he will put in effect when the time comes. And he has. And so we can count on it. And as he does that, if you again notice in the scriptures, it kept saying the Lord, right? It kept saying the Lord. And every time I tell you, when you read the word Lord, you've got to pay attention to the way it's written. Because the way it's written here in Jeremiah with all uppercase letters means the covenant name of the Lord, which makes sense, right? It makes sense that the Lord uses his covenant name when he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will institute a new covenant. Because he is a good covenantal keeping God and because he loves us and he, he knows that we were, much like the children of Israel, unable, we would not be able to keep the Mosaic covenant either. He says, the day is coming when I will, in my power, by my covenant name, institute a new covenant that is for all people. And when he says that, he makes promises to us. And this morning, we're going to see those last five promises that he makes. And promise number five, just continuing the count from last week, is this. The new covenant promises knowledge. Look down in verse 34. I find this an interesting verse. He says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, when I read that verse, my eyes are, are gravitated and my, my thought processes goes, we won't have to teach. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor. Now, we don't maybe think about that, but in the context of Jeremiah writing that and introducing the covenant, that's a huge statement for his audience. Because his audience, up until this time, all they remember is what has been taught to them from Deuteronomy 4, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, what's called the Shema. And they had to recite this. And this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he says this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, hand, and they shall be, a, be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. That was what they were supposed to do. Teach. Diligently teach. Right? When you see pictures of Orthodox Jews, and, and they have the phylacteries on their arms and the little box on their head. That's them taking this scripture and, and, and going, all right, I, I am binding myself to them just like the Lord has taught me. When you see, and I believe it, it made news this week with the, the vice president's husband putting uh, a, a manure, I think, on, on the doorpost of the vice president's house, the first uh, a Jewish uh, husband of a president, vice president, and, and put it on the doorpost. That little, it's like a little ceramic or metal piece that you put right there, and it was supposed to hold the law. That, that's when it says, you shall write them on the doorpost. That's what they're doing. They're putting them on the doorpost. So all of a sudden, Jeremiah says, a new covenant is coming where you won't teach them. Now, 
How would you, hearing this for the first time, take that? What do you mean? I won't. You've told me that as part of what? The old covenant, I have to do this. But a time is coming when this won't happen. What, what is going on here? What, what is going on? Well, we're basically moving from an outside teacher to an internal teacher. What does he say? He says, you won't have to teach them for they shall all know me. How in the world will everyone know God? What is happening? John 6, 45 through 47. It is written by the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's coming a time when God himself becomes our teacher. God himself leads us in the truth. Now, that does not preclude faithful Sunday school teachers. It does not preclude uh, faithful Bible study teachers or parents teaching their kids or or pastors teaching their their congregation. Those roles are still vitally important in the kingdom. But here's the best way I think I can explain this to help you understand. Some of you, many of you, maybe all of you at one time or another have come up to me after a a sermon and and said, Gary, thank you for that message. And and you will say, you know, I I learned something new about that. And, And I appreciate those, by the way. Thank you. However, one of the things I've noticed in many of those conversations is this. What you learn about God is true, but it's not what I said in my message. It's not something that I covered. Now, it may be tangentially related to the message. It may be an application from the message. But I didn't say it. So how in the world did you know that? If I didn't teach it to you, how did you know that? Because God, through the Holy Spirit now, is our teacher who leads us and guides us into all truth. That's why Jesus says, when I go away, I'm going to send you a helper who's going to teach you about all the things that I have taught you. He's going to guide you into all truth concerning righteousness, concerning sin. He's going to guide you into this. And the Holy Spirit's role, or one of his roles, is to lead us and guide us and teach us about God's word and what God has said to understand God more. So in those moments when that happens, again, Thank you. I appreciate the kind compliments. However, it's just me being a vessel that God used where the Holy Spirit actually taught you. Which is something you ought to find amazing. That God himself now takes on the role of teaching us so that we will have knowledge of him. Number six, and we'll spend a little more time here this morning. The new covenant promises satisfaction. Promises satisfaction. Now, if you want to finish that, I wasn't trying to get into really long sentences, maybe put for sin. It promises satisfaction for sin. And this is the part of the new covenant that we really latch on to, right? Verse 
the, the end of verse 34 where he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The payment for our sin was made by Jesus Christ on the cross, and God is satisfied with that payment. Now, when, when we, you say that, and when I say that, I, I will confess to you, those, those sounds like, that's, that's harsh words. When you just think about everything that happened, you think about the crucifixion, and then you say, God was, was satisfied with that? The, the wording in and of itself kind of provides an erroneous view of God. It, it, it makes it look like God is relishing and enjoying what happened to Jesus on the cross. And, and, and that's not the image that I am trying to convey when I say that in his death, God was satisfied. Right? And this, this is a, a, a major theological issue. This is, this is a, a big deal. Y'all, I think most of you are familiar with the hymn in Christ Alone, and I use this as an illustration just to show you how big of an issue it actually is. Because when the Gettys wrote that hymn, they wrote, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And years ago, what happened was the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to include that song in their hymnal. But they didn't like those lyrics. And what they did was they, they, they went up to, to, to the hymn writers and, and they said, look, we like your song. And I, I forget, I think it's either four or five stanzas. They said, we like everything about in Christ alone except for that one little line and they said can we change it to this where it says to the love of god was magnified so till on the cross as jesus died the love of god was magnified now that's beautiful poetry it, it really is it flows you could sing that but boy those are two radically different theological statements very radical and the reason I say this is because Jesus didn't die just to magnify God's love. Was God's love magnified on the cross? A absolutely. The love of God was demonstrated in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Was it magnified? Absolutely. I would not disagree with that. The love of God is magnified every time we proclaim the gospel that says Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. But here's the thing. He didn't die because we had a lack of a love problem. Jesus died for us because we had a sin problem. And that's what needed to be taken care of. That's what needed to be satisfied. So when Jesus died on the cross, he made satisfaction for our sins. And now I'm like you going, how does that happen? All right, so fair warning. We're getting ready to jump off the high dive into deep waters. Stay with me for just a minute and it'll come together, okay? What we're dealing with is the issue of atonement. 
And, and this verse forces us to examine it. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How, how does this work? How is atonement for our sin made? And the word atonement kind of is, is the bigger, broader heading that encompasses everything. The, Jesus' death on the cross, uh, substitution, reconciliation, all, all those big words, right, kind of intertwined and comes together under this, this heading of atonement. And to understand this, we really need to go back to the beginning. Remember when we went through Genesis and I said, as we study Genesis, we need to understand that Genesis is foundational to everything else the Bible teaches I wasn't speaking in, in hyperbole. I, I really, really meant it. You go back to creation, and we were made by God, and thus, since God was our creator, we belong to God. We are his creation. But we as his creation, we sin. We messed up everything. And because of our sin... It was injurious to a holy and righteous God. And because God is holy and righteous, the justice of God demands the injuring party to be punished for his sins. Go back and read the Old Covenant. Right? The foundation you look in the Old Covenant was, if you do this, if you injure somebody's cow, then you had to do this. There was a penalty for it. And many times the penalty, and we see this in, in law cases too, the penalty and the way to make restitution was a little bit more than the injury that was occurred. Now, in, in our day and time, we, we divide that into the criminal part of our court system and then the civil part. So if you're found criminally liable for doing something, you can then be sued, or even if you weren't, you can be sued in civil court. And so... The civil court basically is adding more to the payment than for the criminal aspect. And so payment had to be made. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. If we have caused injury to God because of our sin, how do we as humans do anything to satisfy him? What do we bring to God that says, I'm sorry? What do we bring to God to make restitution for the injury that we caused? I don't know about you, but I got nothing. Right? I, I got, what am I going to bring? I'm, I'm, I'm sinful human. So at that point, if God acts in his justice, then nobody survives. We're completely and totally helpless. So what does God do? In the Old Testament, he gives what? He gives the sacrificial system, right? And part of that sacrificial system was you brought the sacrifices. And, and, and we've talked about this before. They would bring the sacrifice. And remember, you were the one who brought the sacrifice. You would lay your hands on the sacrifice. You would slaughter the sacrifice. And the whole idea was, as you were doing this, you're, you're, you're making atonement for your sin. You're covering it. But let me ask you this. Is that sheep really enough to cover your sins? 
Right? God, God is creating the system. He says, look, I'm, I'm going to cover their sins. But remember, all of, everything that happened in the Old Covenant was, was a covering looking forward to Jesus. So even though they have the Old, the, the old Covenant, have, have they really solved the sin problem? Well, in the fact that God gives it and says, I'm going to kind of put it on your account until Jesus comes, yes. But by and large, no. There's nothing that they could do. And think about this. There was nothing collectively that the whole nation together as one could do. There's nothing that all of humanity throughout all time could do. There's nothing. If we could all just, you know, come together, right? If we could all come together and work towards one goal to satisfy God, all seven billion of us on the planet right now, you know what? We'd fall short. There's, there's nothing we could do. So there's nothing that man can do collectively. There's nothing that we can do. We can't work well enough. Something still has to be done. And for it to be done where it has its effect on humanity, it can't be a bull, a sheep, a goat, a bird, or something else. Does that make sense? So what is going to happen? Insert here Gary's favorite two words of the Bible. But God. But God intervened. He did something. God stepped out of heaven as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and did what? He clothed himself in humanity. Have you ever thought, why didn't he come as a bull? And, and I'm not being flippant. I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But why a human? If the entire sacrificial system was animals, why didn't he come, come as the perfect animal for the sacrifice? Because the animals would not work. To affect salvation for humanity, there needed to be someone who could stand in as the perfect representation of humanity without sin, who kept the law perfectly. And the only way for that to happen is God himself to take on flesh. It was completely necessary. And so he comes, he, he lives a perfect sinless life, and then what? He offers himself up to death on the cross since he was God in the flesh, completely God, completely human, and within his power to offer his own life up. Right? John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. So Jesus, God in the flesh, fulfills, checks all the boxes that is needed so that when he goes to the cross and becomes sin for us, he becomes a holy sacrifice redeeming us from the curse of the law. And his sacrifice was infinitely able to satisfy, to be the restitution that the righteous justice of God demanded. So now, we can say what? As Paul wrote, there is now no condemnation for those who are 
in Christ Jesus. Why? Because what Christ did on the cross for us satisfies the wrath of God. It satisfies the justice of God. It satisfies the condition of the new covenant where he says, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now it's no longer covered. It is now completely and totally blotted out. So instead of us dying under his justice, we live under his righteousness. Specifically, the righteousness of Christ that was demonstrated on the cross for our sins. You can all take a breath now. <laughs> because our sins have been satisfied. They've been dealt with. Number seven. The new covenant promises unconditionality. You see this in verses 35 through 37 a reminder that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. If then, if then, if then, if you did this, then I will do this. They couldn't do it, right? They got carried off into exile, which is part of the curses. The conditions were not fulfilled. The covenant was fractured. But Jesus is coming, and there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new covenant where Jesus fulfills, just like we saw. He fulfills the law and institutes the new covenant. Now, you may ask yourself, well, hold on. If the new covenant supersedes the old, could there possibly be a time in the future when there's going to be something else that supersedes the new? And the answer to that is no. I mean, it's a legitimate question, but the answer is no. That's why Jesus, excuse me, that's why God writing through this says, look, I'm giving it. And it says, it's, it's going to last as long as the sun is there for day, the fixed order of the moon who stirs up the seas. It's a fixed order. It's not going to depart. He says, If the heavens can be measured, the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Basically, what he is doing is stating something in the negative to make you understand that it can't possibly happen. Right? If you could measure the heavens... Right? How, how are we doing with that? <laughs> right? we're, we're still trying to figure out how to measure the heavens. We sent up the Hubble telescope years, of, what, 20-some years ago, and we were like, wow. And then here recently we're sending up higher-powered telescopes, and we're like, okay, wow. And it doesn't matter how big of a telescope we put in the, in the sky. You know what we haven't determined? How big the universe is. We still don't know. The foundations of the earth below can be explored. Right? There's parts of the ocean we still haven't seen the bottom of. Not even that, we, we haven't, have we seen the center of the earth, right? We think we know what it looks like, right? We've all seen that nice little picture where they draw the earth and then the mantle and then the crust and then, you know, that little ball of lava in the middle. I mean, I guess it's there, but ain't nobody been there to see it. Right? I mean, I mean that's, that's what he's saying. Because we recognize our limitations as humans. We're never going to be able to know the size of the universe. We're never going to be able to explore the foundations of the earth. Therefore, the covenant will never, ever, ever cease to exist. 
And the reason it will never cease to exist is because the one who instituted the covenant, Jesus Christ, is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And He is there from all the way eternity past, all the way into eternity future. And so his atoning work on the cross will keep the covenant for us. This is my blood in the new covenant. All he did is instituted, it's kept, it's finished. What does he cry out on the cross? It is finished, it is finished for all eternity. There is nothing that is going to come down the road that is going to overturn the new covenant. It unconditional promises and it's not based on what we do it is all based on what christ did number eight the new covenant promises habitation a day is coming it says when he will rebuild the city of jerusalem you look down in verse 28 you see jeremiah walking through talking about or excuse me you look in verse 28 we didn't do that he says he is going to overthrow and destroy the city and then he says, hey, there's going to be a time when it's going to be rebuilt. Now, he was right on both accounts because the Babylonians came in and, re and, and destroyed Judah, destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. But there's coming a time again where he says he's, he's going to build it up. And he kind of walks us through parts of the city saying this is where it's going to be built up. And this is where the gates are going to stand again. And he was right when the exiles returned uh, under Nehemiah and Ezra. They rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. And the fulfillment of Jeremiah happened in his lifetime. Some of the people who heard this saw that happen. But what makes Jerusalem so special? Well, Jerusalem was where the temple was, and by extension, then the temple was where God met with his people. And so the promise to rebuild the city is a promise that describes a physical place where God's people will dwell with God, and God will dwell with his people. It will be sacred, it will be holy, and it will be rebuilt in such a way that it will never be overthrown again so that when we are part of the city, we don't ever have to worry about the foundations being destroyed. We won't have to worry about being taken off into exile because it's never going to be destroyed again. But then finally, the new covenant promises a future. And I know if you kept notes last week, you're going, Gary, that was point number one. And you're correct. Thank you for taking notes. Thank you for remembering. So why do I mention it here? As we have gone through and we have looked at these eight promises, did any of you, as you heard those promises and as you were thinking about them, did, did it say, yeah, I see that, that makes sense, but at the same time, maybe just a little feeling in the back of your mind that, that we're missing something? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, maybe I'm not describing it very well. And the reason I bring that up is because we are experiencing those promises now. We absolutely are. Jesus completely and totally fulfilled the new covenant. At the same time, when you read those promises, there are parts of those promises where we go, I see how it applies now, but how... I'm um, not sure that we're experiencing the ultimate consummation of that. Because parts of it talks about Israel never being destroyed again. We've seen Israel 
exist, not exist, go out, go back. We've seen Jerusalem destroyed, not rebuilt, destroyed again. We're, we're seeing and going, all right, uh, we're not actually living in a city where we see God face to face. So there are parts, not, not parts, that's not, that's not correct. The ultimate consummation of the new covenant, where we see it in, its, in all its perfection, perhaps is a way to state it, is when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom for all eternity. Until then, we get to enjoy them now. You get to enjoy now having your sins forgiven. You get to enjoy now God through the Holy Spirit teaching you. You get to enjoy those now. At the same time, there's coming a better day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. Now I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, all their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city's lie four square, its length, its width, and its height. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned in every kind of jewel. The first jewel was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth cryoparse, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. 
For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will reign their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter in. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street to the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is the future that all who place their trust in Jesus Christ have to look forward to. That is the future when the new covenant, the ultimate consummation of it is made and we get to experience all the perfect blessings of it as we are dwelling and living with God because Christ has made satisfaction for our sins forever and ever. So just as John says, when Jesus says, surely I am coming soon, when you read those promises, I think we can agree with John and pray the same thing. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.